delighted to welcome Kara Tabachnik to the show. Kara is a journalist and has been reporting and writing about crime, trafficking and human rights issues in the US and abroad. Her work touches on all aspects of justice, including policing, migration, prisons, drugs, technology and violence. She has written for publications such as Marie Claire, The O, Oprah Magazine, Bloomberg Business Week, The Washington Post Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, The Christian Science Monitor, The Guardian and Scientific American. From 2008 to 2015, she was the Deputy Director of the Centre on Media, Crime and Justice at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. While there, she also served as a managing editor of the daily news service, The Crime Report. Cara is a graduate of Columbia University School of Journalism. Cara is currently Senior Associate Media Programs at PRB, where she manages their flagship USAID program, Women's Edition, which trains female journalists in South Asia and Africa on public health issues. We will, I'm sure, hear more from Cara about her interesting career shortly. But for now, welcome Cara to the Passion Factor Pursuing a Career in Human Rights. Thanks, Vicky. Thanks for having me. So the, the first question that I always start with my guests is really sort of where it all started for you. What motivated you to work in the human rights field and, um, yeah, your, your, your journey in, I suppose? Well, I actually never really envisioned myself working in the human rights as a, or as a journalist beginning of my career. I actually had studied the arts and I had studied textile design and had been a passion of mine from when I was very young. And I through that through that um, passion, I had gotten to travel the world and learn about textiles from different communities that created these wonderful, wonderful fabrics. And little by little, my interest grew in understanding and learning more about the uh, the wide world that I had very little to um, growing up. So as I was learning more about textiles, I was thinking about what I wanted to do and um, really kind of developing my interests and around, and I was always a writer. I'd always written a lot around, um, you know, fiction, nonfiction. I was always um, sending out stories and trying to uh, make my mark in that field a little bit. But I thought to myself that this would be a combination creative interest and my interest in the in the world around me and some of the uh, human rights issues to become interested in. At this time, um, I had started working in a in sort of justice industry in the welfare to work in a welfare to work program where I worked with people coming out of uh, prison or jail in New York City I was living and I had helped them once they were coming out of uh, prison or jail I helped them think about next step. Um, and the one-to-one case management work, I wanted to kind of do something on a larger scale. So all those things came together and I started working intern journalist for different news outlets and I applied to receive um, a master's degree in journalism from Columbia University in New York City and I was accepted. Um, when I and enrolled in university, that was big, uh, that was my big push into working in, in, in covering these sort of issues. 
Um, and I've given a very short back and side um, in the intro there of, of what your really interesting uh, career path has been to date. But perhaps you could sort of share a little bit more about where it's taken you, what you've done, and, and, and to the point where you are now um, at, at PRB. Sure. So when I got to Columbia, I still had a round in working around justice issues, and I wanted to expand upon that. Um, as much internationally yet, but I was really focusing on U.S. domestic issues uh, in the criminal justice world. This was back in 2005, and this was sort of the beginning in New York City where I was of a lot of awareness and knowledge about some of the systemic issues facing the American criminal justice system. Uh, from 1970 to 2005, the, the people of prison and jail in America uh, you know, it went from about 200,000 population to 3 million with one out of every three, one of the in person of color. So there started to be a lot of interest around what was happening in the criminal justice system and why it was so, so stacked against um, um, ethnic uh, communities. So I, I took a really big interest in that. And I started in, in my university career. And at Columbia, there's a, a very large school of thought and study around policing and police issues. And so I wrote my uh, master's thesis, or I studied my master's, um, my master's track on policing in, in New York City, specifically looking at stop and frisk issue, which was where police were stopping um, young people, people for minor infractions, it could be from urinating on the on the public um, sidewalk to be trespassing in a friend's house where you're not supposed to enter public housing in your resident. So they would go in a, and stop them and ask them questions. And they would write up something called the Form 250, I think it was. I'm not sure about the number, but I think it was 250. And that, that would be entered into the system. So once that form was entered in the system, that would uh, create a record for the person mm -hmm. who got stopped, even if it was for arrest wasn't generated. And then what happened from that, the next time they stopped, they're already in the, in the system. And that, that obviously pushed their case forward. Then they would be arrested and then they would be taken down and they would be charged with some sort of infraction based on a record that really had no probable cause or no really rooted uh, reason to be have, have been generated. And so that grew the arrest and the population of jail and incarceration in New York City by, you know, tenfold. So I wrote a lot around that. Um, and I was one of the only journalists doing that at the time. And I got some good coverage. I got some really good um, clips out of that. And I landed my first, my first out of the, uh, out of the, out of a school opportunity working as a police reporter at Newsday, which is a very large metropolitan uh, outlet, newspaper in a, in a metropolitan outlet um, at the time. So I worked there as a police reporter covering police and criminal justice. And then um, I had gotten a call or the, they were recruiting at Columbia for people to cover the UN or press work at the UN. And so I, I just decided uh, that United Nations, I decided to apply as well um, and see what would happen because I thought it was a, quite a good opportunity. 
that was a long process to to kind of get that position. But I was selected as one of the press officers to cover the General Assembly. And that was my introduction to sort of working within the United Nations system. I had spent uh, 2006 working um, working in and covering the General Assembly and everything that came that and I loved it. I loved uh, the intersection of the all the different cultures and all the different and, and covering some of the United Nations, um, some of the institutions, and seeing all the all the you know important work and issues coming out of out of the UN at that time. Um, when my contract ended, I went back to Newsday. Wasn't quite ready to leave um, and go into any sort of communications or press officer work. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to stay as a journalist. <clears throat> so I went back to Newsday. I continued um, my career uh, covering breaking news and police and really enjoyed and grew as a journalist. And uh, from my work there, I had got, I then went to the Center of Media Crime and Justice at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, which was a uh, new, new, I uh, think that was based at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice with the idea that it would train and expose journalists around the United States to these burgeoning criminal justice issues, with, which until recently had been severely undercovered. Um, and my role was not only to inform and train and um, you know, build these collaborative networks of journalists to report around some of these some of these issues. I also helped run and edit their daily website called the Crime Report, which provided news policy updates and information to a group of influential criminal justice professionals in the United States. Wow. So <laughs> So I did that for seven, eight years. I really loved that that job. I had a, a um, really significant issue that I think moved the needle in some way. Um, you know, Frisk, which I started my master's thesis on, was a big issue that had changed uh, dramatically. But then uh, the New York City police agreed to stop that in, I don't know, remember the year, but maybe it was 2015. Uh, I had worked on issues of three strikes legislation, which was a big, uh, a big policy in the States, especially in California, um, you know, juvenile justice and, and juvenile justice, tribal justice, financial crime, um, prison rights and reform, you know, a gamut. At the same time, I was still continuing my career as a journalist and freelancing and writing some for some really great publications, some some really um, you know I had some some freedom and some time for it to write more longer form narratives. So doing doing a lot of that. Um, in the last year I was at the center, we began to expand to train journalists in Latin America. So we worked with journalists in Mexico and Guatemala. Um, and uh, San Salvador, and that sort of awakened my uh, international itch that had been dormant for, for so long um, that really, I hadn't really explored in the eight, 10 years I had, I had left graduate school. 
but that has sort of um, awoken my my passion again for international lifestyle and travel. I kind of knew I always wanted to to take some time and live abroad with my family. I had a young family at the time. And so I had agreed, I decided to put together, apply for a Fulbright grant, which uh, was a, a, a grant awarded to journalists or academics in the United States to study issues around the world. And I put together a package to study prison reform in Mexico. And I applied and it was a, it's a big package to put together. You have to get a lot of recommendations. You have to, you know, you have to put, you have to take a language test. You have to appear in person. You have to write an essay. It's a very big package. So everybody knew I was applying for it. And then I didn't make it past the first round. I was floored. I was shocked. I so thought that I was going to get this grant and it was going to bring me and my family to Mexico to study prison reform. And I was going to spend the next year or two years of my life living in Mexico dedicated to, to this study and writing about it. Um, so when it didn't happen, I had to kind of think to myself, okay, so this isn't happening. What do I want to do? Do I still want to stay in New York and continue my work? I really loved my work. Um, and, but I think I had come to the end of everything that I could uh, contribute. And I really wanted to try living abroad. So I just said to my husband, let's, let's just move forward and, and pick somewhere else and just pick what we want and not, not base it on a grant or base it on a, a situation or a professional situation. And he agreed. And so we kind of thought about it. We had two young children at the time, uh, four and six. And we had language that was a big interest of ours. They'd want the children to, to speak a very useful language. So we decided to choose Spain. And in 2015, we moved to, to Spain to be the next chapter of our lives. Well, that's, a, that's quite a journey that you've had there and just the, the, the breadth and depth of what you've done and the issues you've covered and, and you know, where, where the work has taken you um, and how you've kind of picked yourself up from you know, something that you hope you would get and, and sort of re repositioned yourself. I think that's what we we do when we're working sort of in this space very much. Um, as you know, this this podcast um, and these chats that I'm having are really sort of with a view to helping young professionals as they sort of start out their own careers and their own journey in the human rights world. Um, and thinking about your own career path and your own journey and, and sort of the lifestyle that brings what skills and qualities do you think that you need to work in this space um in in the kind of human rights or criminal justice space um and then the particular sort of work that you've done well i think since i've been living in spain and started working for for prb which is a population and public health development organization based out of washington dc where i work with journalists in South Asia and Africa. I have been you know, exposed to, to people of many different backgrounds and cultures and working with them and navigating all the different um, idiosyncrasies that, that go along with that. I would say one of the things, which is similar to, to journalism, you have to talk to a lot of people and you have to quickly be able to, I think, um, you know, understand who you're, who you're dealing with who you're talking to and immediately kind of shift maybe your own patient own approach 
to to allow the person that was training, interviewing, talking uh, for any type of position and to find a common ground space where you can connect, even though there could be a lot of surface differences. I think that's a really important skill in in the human rights field and working with people from many different cultures and many different backgrounds. Uh, and I think it's about to kind of get that. That's like, an, it's almost intuitive. It's not something that can be taught as learned in the field, I believe. But I believe that that is something that is really necessary if you're gonna work in a human rights uh, field. You are gonna be talking to people with very different backgrounds and various uh, situations and, and traumas and successes and family structures and uh, financial structures, very different than your own. And it's really important to figure out a way to sort of common connection so you can move the, move the work forward. I would definitely agree with that, that we, we need to have that sort of deep sensitivity, I think, to, to people in, in other situations, et cetera. You know, if we're, if we're um, as allies to them or advocating for them, exactly, we need to sort of have that, that openness there. Um, something that you kind of mentioned there and in, in, in your own sort of professional career there is um, around sort of further study. And certainly many organisations now, many human rights organisations now um, or institutions are asking that young professionals who are looking to work in the sector have some sort of advanced degree um, beyond their undergraduate degree. Now, I know each kind of country is slightly different in terms of their, their educational system there, but, but what are your thoughts about the value of th further study, be it um, a master's and, and even further sort of beyond that in terms of progressing your, your career in, in this space? I think it's of huge value. Obviously, I wouldn't have uh, been able to progress or have the opportunities I did if I didn't return to school and go to Columbia. Maybe I would if I had just tried to do internships and network, but that wasn't my experience. My experience was that I did eventually go get a master's and that launched me into the space immediately. That being mm -hmm. said, I had uh, support and a for uh, different finance and think about it and work. I was able to go work and go to school during my experience. So a master's program that was going to take a year, Columbia allowed me to do it in two years. And that was helpful because I was able to, I didn't have to take out any loans for my day-to-day -day expenses. Um, so I paid for all my day-to-day -day expenses and I was lucky that I had plenty of family help to, to pay for the tuition. So I do think it's worth it, but and um, you know, that I would say to anybody starting out in the field, it's not a field. So you have to be very cautious about where you choose to spend your money. I would agree just to get a master's. I would make sure you go to a place that's going to be a valuable um a valuable experience, not only in the level of thought, the uh sort of Field, like the respect that the institute has, the students, the the the, but also in in what you are what you're spending for it. I know that's less of a concern for you know European or or maybe counterparts in Africa or Asia, but I know for any Americans uh, possible students listening mm -hmm. to this, education costs are very very high. 
So it is a real, real problem for people thinking about going to American universities about how to pay this huge sum of money back. That is something to think about. Absolutely. It's an investment. I mean, this is what I'm saying to young professionals very much. It's not only an investment of time, usually a year or perhaps even longer, um, but certainly there are financial implications as well there. So it's really important that you find the right institution for you in terms of the course and in terms of the teaching, et cetera. And the, the value, as you say, that it's going to give you um, on your CV and, and thereafter. So, um, and, and when do you think is the best time to do it? Because you went back, didn't you, um, to, to grad school there, but for some young professionals, they may want to do it straight after they've graduated, straight after they've done their undergraduates. I would definitely recommend working for mm-hmm. at first. I mean, it depends type of work that you that you want to do some if you want to work as a you know as a therapist or in the psychosocial part you may need a degree before you can even get a job so that's a little bit different or if you're a lawyer like and you want to work in the legal piece of it you may need a degree before the job but I think that in pretty and wisdom is is price is is priceless like and that just comes with time so the longer you can stretch it out, if you can work for a few years or travel for a few years or intern and then come back and apply, I just think that will serve serve your career so much, so much, you know, so much and just go from school to school. Because mm-hmm. when you get onto the workforce, you're there for a long time. <laughs> Sorry, when you when you get onto when you get onto the workforce when you get into the yeah. workforce you're there for a long mm-hmm. time yeah and i think that's hard for people to realize in the beginning you know you just want everything to hurry up and all the pieces to fall into place and and start but that's not really the way life is right life is a series mm-hmm. of of you you probably to spend all this money and time investing in education and degrees and then you get on and then you realize you don't even like it I've seen that happen to a lot of people that that realize that. And then then what? Then it's just a very complicated thing because you just told yourself that this is what you wanted to do for all these years and invested all this time and money. And then it's not for you. So working in the field is really helpful. Um, I think there's a high degree of burnout. So if you, you know, straight to school, to a master's program and then straight into the field, you know, 10 years in. It's going to feel very different for you than it did, you know, when you were fresh and young. So you really have, it's hard to think about that. It's hard to think that far ahead when you're mm-hmm. just starting out. And no matter how much you talk about it, it's one of those things you need to experience for yourself. But um, if you could take, if anybody could take any time and work for a few years, that good. It gives you a taste of what you're into. You see how to be in a professional interactions you have time to see if you enjoy the work um, and if you enjoy the people you'll be coming in contact with I will say I loved making textiles and designing things and really loved the creative process but I did not like the people in the field I did not like the field so that was a huge thing for me um, mm-hmm. to realize that when I was younger Mm-hmm. yeah no there's great value in that and then you know when you come back to do your masters it has that bit more resonance about it and you can actually apply what you've seen in the on the ground to the theoretical 
work and studies that you'll be doing in the master's. So I think there's there's great value in it and in sort of coming back to it. Um, if people are, are sort of thinking about, you know, crafting and creating their, their resume, their CV, such that it stands out, such that it, um, in terms of trying to break into the, the human rights sector, be it in communications, journalism, et cetera, or other sectors, what, what in your view makes a good sort of standout, quote unquote, human rights resume, human rights CV? How can the young professionals stand out from the crowd when there is so much competition out there to get that first position in, in the sector? Well, that, that, so that I don't, it's just a very hard thing to do. One thing that I've noticed when I mm. review resumes now that mm-hmm. um, I mean, people, when, when you look at resumes, you're going to look at some, some other educational experience that will help move them up. But I think any actionable um, or interesting programming work you have done or life experiences always, to me, help somebody stand out of, out of the crowd. Um, and, and if they can say very sort of, uh, succinctly, like what they did that moved something forward, then it would be really, I think, uh, I think the eye of, of people I, I use. And I also, I, I, the resume to me should just be one page. <laughs> people said uh, resume, now, you know, 10 pages and, yeah. and I don't know be helpful I think it's people generally aren't interested in, in doing that I know for me now whenever I apply to jobs or when I was applying or even when I get resumes myself I always try it's different because I'm much further into the field but what I always mm-hmm. try to do and this is where my training comes in is to say you know actionable things that I that have moved the field forward in some way you know like I in my job I did this this and this which expanded our programs and you know, uh, help fund uh, this uh, particular piece of, of the puzzle. So very, 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 very just ideas and things that I'm, um, other, and that's what I think helps move yeah. a resume to the pack. And that definitely kind of accords with other sort of professionals that I've spoken to in this sector, very much about the impact of what you've done rather than just sort of setting out all the responsibilities, but the actual impact and, and transformation of the work that you've done um, in, this, in the human rights space, um, presenting that on your CV. I'm not sure about the one-page thing. That, that might be a challenge for some, um, but certainly um, it's something that we can work towards. Um, and equally sort of important, I suppose, and, and the human rights sector, our sector is, is, is as much guilty of this as others, is, is sort of the importance and value of networking um and and how um it has helped you in your career but equally what sort of advice you can give to young professionals who who might find networking a little bit uncomfortable a little bit difficult to do particularly now in the midst of a pandemic as we're in there but yeah your thoughts around networking and the value of of such a that work i think that networking is obviously key i most of my jobs, I have to be honest, I've not gotten from networking. Um, I've just gotten from cold resumes, which is interesting. But most people, um, I think that, you know, and, and, and seeing what's around in your network is probably, is probably the, any expansion I've had in my life of my career, expanding my um, repertoire, repertoire or my 
skill set has been been from networking. And I think that it's really important to do. And most people are um, not everybody, of course, but most people are. If you just reach out and ask them for, for help or assistance, they will respond. It may not come to anything, but it may, it may come to something. And if you don't try, then, then it's never going to happen. So I definitely encourage everybody to network. I've been, you know, I've had a lot of practices at, at this because as a, constantly reaching out to know and asking them for their time. Um, so even something that uh, gets turned down and I have a thick skin, I don't, I don't get, I don't get, you know, ruffled. So I think that that is a skill that is necessary. And if you really want to grow your career or grow your, you know, grow your skill set, networking is really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think particularly now in the time of the pandemic, I mean, certainly I, I would encourage young professionals to spend time on, on LinkedIn and to sort of reach out to people who have interesting positions that they might want to kind of be in in one day and just ask for that informational chat for half an hour about that person's journey how they got to where they got to you're not asking them for a job you're not asking them for anything like that but just you know listening to their own sort of path um and I think you're right people generally will respond and will be receptive um if if they're approached I would like to think that definitely it's okay don't be scared of the cold pitch people Mm -hmm. really and if they don't respond it's really it's not you just move on yeah Absolutely. You might have to do sort of eight or 10, but if three, three reply, then that's not a bad hit rate, I would say. Um, and, and equally sort of uh, along those lines of just as you starting out undertaking pro bono or, or voluntary opportunities, just as a first step to kind of get a taster of the particular work, get to know the people in the sector, the organizations. Um, what, what are your sort of thoughts around, around that? I would only do it if it was a very clear or um, if there were clear outcomes in like either the developed internship volunteer program. So you know how boundaries are going to be respected, how mm-hmm. your work is going to be valued. Um, or it, when I first started out, we did interns and everything too, but they were paid. There was a very sort of clear uh, pipeline of, of why it was really important. Obviously, you were paid almost nothing. It was a stipend, but you had something. There was a clear pipeline of what you were doing and why you were doing it and what you were getting out of it. So I would make sure all the structures are in place um, or not. If it's a small NGO or a startup or something that's just beginning, then I would ask for something like that, some some structures or boundaries. So it's not just you getting run ragged or working a lot with no no clear outcomes. So, you know, I would I would definitely advocate for that. Definitely. So I mean exactly what I say to young professionals is you've got to get something out of this experience. As much as you helping that organization or supporting that organization, you are giving of your time. So it's got to add value to you but in a way that it's meaningful and that and is respectful at the end of the day um and always if possible to try and find something that's remunerated and paid because there's no reason why your work shouldn't be shouldn't be valued in um in that way 
So moving a little bit away from sort of working and breaking into to this sector, um, it will be really interesting to hear from you about your sort of typical day, or maybe there's no typical day in the life of, of a journalist who's reporting on human rights issues uh, and, and, and wider, and, and yeah, as we're sitting here in the middle of the pandemic, but what's the day-to-day sort of life for you like at the moment? Well, I mean, since the pandemic, it's been mostly reporting uh, on the phone or doing desk stuff. Most of my day-to-day work at the career is working with other journalists. So be um, I coach and mentor in other journalists and so and also um, organize and design programming for them to learn about different content areas. So my typical day can vary. Um, it could be I, uh, I have a call of a journalist to go over a story pitch that they sent me that I'm reviewing and look at it and we go over whether it's uh, working or not, go back and forth. I could I could have an introductory call with an app that is um, considering um, painting in one of our programming events and we talk a little bit about their work. I interview them and I put together points and, and information for other journalists that are writing upon this particular topics and make sure that, that it works um, you know, for what we're trying to achieve. Um, so I could be editing a story, which is a, a, a really enjoyable thing to do. I'm in my own work. I still am always pitching and finding pitches, which is the proposal part where we send and say, is this a story that you're interested in? And then once they say yes or no, we can go out and do the reporting in the field. Um, It's been a little while since I've been reported in the field, but let's say if I have to describe a field, went to Morocco, before the pandemic to, to meet at a week there. And I met with um, all sorts of, all sorts of uh, different types of people to report the stories from migrants that were arriving from Cameroon fleeing the war and, and asking the church for safety to smugglers that had um, tried to get to Europe themselves, but were now were stuck in smuggling other migrants across the ocean to to Europe, to um, a young uh, migrant I wrote about that was uh, training to be a world-class runner when they made it to Europe so I could spend the time interviewing them in person, seeing what they're going through, um, they show me their locations, their space, getting getting their stories pretty much. And that's, that's, the, that's my favorite part of the job. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hearing those sort of human interest stories and then reporting on them is is amazing. Um, and so I suppose it kind of brings me neatly to kind of think to ask you about what has been perhaps the highlight or perhaps have been a couple of highlights of your of your career to date, things that just stand out or, or stay with you or have stayed with you with your work. Um, well, definitely the highlight was my first cover story for the Washington Post magazine. That was a was back in about um, 2015, where I wrote my first big cover story on opioid addiction. I wrote a lot about that, um, the opioid crisis in the United States, and I had written about a new, um, and 
it's not really known, but most of our opioid addicts in the United States go eventually at one point through the jail system because they're arrested for drug use and they're brought down to the jail system, which is different than the prison system. But they're, they, you know, the book cycled. And one of, the, one of the possibilities when you go through the jail system, opioid addiction, to get um, access to uh, some, some assistance. So they were piloting drug called uh, vitriol back then uh, on, on opiate, opioid addicts that were coming through the jail system to see if it would work. So that my story was on that. And I had written a lot of stories beforehand, but I've never, I never written a magazine or in a large, large public worked in that story for almost a year with a wonderful man named Troy Garver, who actually um, had broken his neck in a farming accident and become addicted to opioids and didn't even realize it until he was so incapacitated that um, he had, you know, his life had led to robbery and, and all sorts of uh, byproducts of the addiction. And so I started worth him and, and trailing him and time with his family and writing about these new possibilities and also about the negative or you know somewhat negative side of having addiction married uh, addiction managed by our criminal justice system and um and I was really proud of that story so it was a big big excitement for me when it first came out absolutely it sounds like a very important important piece as well and I suppose the flip side of that is, and, and it's something we've all sort of had, um, have you sort of faced any setbacks or challenges in your career and, and sort of how did you how did you handle them? Because we know that our careers are not always linear and things come in our way and things like that and, and difficulties or challenges. Definitely face challenges all the time. I'm rejected yeah. every, every day. <laughs> <laughs> we pick ourselves up. <laughs> Well, always. I mean, as a journalist or as a writer or any type of some um, person that works in media, you're all rejected um, at some level. Either your proposal is rejected, you get back edits that you don't agree with, or you maybe have a harsh, harsh um, boss that you're working with that maybe you. And I think as you know, part of a journalist or a human, you know, human rights journalist is still like a creative person. So you do take it mm-hmm. personally. I don't care what day, um, but you got to pick up and, and try and move on. I'm not capable. Sometimes I need some, time. like I take the edits and I have to sit on it for weeks. I, you know, can organize myself to do it again. Um, but there is a lot of ups and downs within, within the process. It's, it's, it's a very challenging career and you have to be mm-hmm. willing to, to ride with the ride with, the, you know, ride the waves and roll with the punches and every cliche out there because it is super competitive. It is super harsh. Um, and very, it can be very, very, very damaging to, to your ego. So you have to have a big one. <laughs> going in. You have to have a big one going in and will stay medium the whole the whole career yeah absolutely I think I'm, I'm definitely with you there about sort of having those yeah those things that turn down or those rejections and things and, and you know be it going for a job or applying for a bid and not getting it and stuff and you have to sort of look at it as a, a learning experience and then pick yourself up and, and move on as you absolutely say something that 
I've been thinking about a lot, although I think it's very important for young professionals, is this whole concept or piece around sort of mentorship that we have somebody who kind of walks alongside us during our career and they can be with us for different moments of our career and for different things. Um, and I suppose, you know, the my question to you is really, have you had mentors throughout your career? If so, what value they've brought and, and your thoughts about that for, for young professionals who are listening to this? Well, I never had a, a mentor um, or never anybody that really was dedicated to me and mentoring me in the field. And that was something I wished I had. I, I always mm-hmm. wished I had a dedicated mentor. Maybe I never had one because I had so many support in so many other areas of my life that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that's why I never had a gravitate to oh, I'm going to work with you until you, you, you flourish. It was kind of always you know, people liked me, but nobody is ever like, I'm going to take you under my wing. Um, so I wish I had that. It didn't work out for me that way. I try and be a mentor to a lot of people. Um, obviously through my own training career, my own interactions in my training, but I also, I do have young journalists contact me uh, from time to time or young, young professionals contact me out of, out of the blue that I, I talk to and I keep in touch with and I try and help them and, and connect them. Um, and that has been really satisfying for me. So I do think that it is super, super important. It's really, it is a challenge to find somebody that's going to like take you under their wing and help you really that, you know, glide into your career. The truth is that it's really something you have to do yourself, even if you have even if you have a mentor, you still got to want it and want to push it forward enough that, that it happens. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it, it's down to the individual. Um, but I do agree that that's value in, in having somebody sort of just on the sidelines there to support you as you go. So my final sort of questions are, are, are more around the sort of the lifestyle and the, the sort of self-care issues that this work brings, because as a reporter, I'm sure you, you know, you, you've alluded there to some really difficult, harrowing stories that you've worked on and, and um, reported on there. So we come into kind of very close contact with that kind of those kind of issues, be it torture, death penalty, prison reform, prison issues, etc. Um, and burnout and exhaustion, as you've mentioned, are real issues in our sector. So, again, it's really about what your thoughts are on that and what advice you can offer to, to young professionals who are looking to start out in this career to know that it's not always the easiest area to work in in, the, in a sort of emotional sort of sense. Um. Well, I mean, I think that's an interesting thing as a journalist. Like, I've spent so many years, uh, 2005, I started working as a journalist. It's 2016. 17 years, 16 years working as a journalist. I've heard so many stories um, from so many people who have gone through so many traumas is that I've learned the skill of really keeping my um, apart from, from, from the uh, person I'm interviewing. And I know my husband always complains about it. He's like, you're so cold. I'm like, if I, if I emotionally attached to everybody that I work on a story about like I won't be able to get out of bed in the morning so I think there's a there's a real you know you have to learn the skill of listening and empathizing and trying to do your best to 
do your job, which in my case is to write the story or assist somebody in their in their story uh, without getting too deeply emotionally uh, attached. It's sort of a fine line that takes a long time to, to learn how to do that. And a lot of people, you know, I mean, you see this, a lot of people get very emotionally exhausted. I, I've never worked in a real conflict zone, but I've had friends or journalists that have had, and it is a behavior um, at some level, and, and it's really hard to break. So you have to be really careful going in, uh, knowing what your boundaries are going to be, how you set yourself, how you balance yourself after the day is done because you know sort of when the day is done you still or that it's just you like you still exist and and how you're going to manage that um in my case you know I never really worked in very conflict conflict zones I've always kept it in a in a zone where it didn't bring me down with it and I think that was important for me I I don't I don't know about it um so I knew that I kind of know a little about myself so I've always kept it um in in a place that I was never a war war reporter or conflict reporter and that's that's for a reason um and I never uh, and you know I, I got married I had children uh that changed my boundaries a lot my thought process a lot about what I'm willing to give and and where I need to to draw the line. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that that's right. It's very very easy in this sector to to kind of get very deeply and personally involved and very quickly, um, and and then forget about ourselves because if we want to do our best work, we need to have I think that detachment as you mentioned there, but keeping the empathy very close um, and and being you know strong listeners um, and allies there. So that really sort of brings me to my very last kind of question is, you know, can you offer any sort of final words or, or pearls of wisdom for, for the young professionals who, after hearing the story still, you know, they would still want to work in the human rights field and, and feel that it's very much where they want to go? Any sort of final, yeah, final words, I guess. <laughs> um, well, I think it's a really, it's, an, it's a, actually a beautiful opportunity believe in the good of, of people and the power to make a change and that that passion and that dedication to these to these issues to this lifestyle to traveling the world just just makes I think in general um, the world a better place I find for myself when I bridge cultures when I bridge um, backgrounds when I um, you know religion, different skin colors it it's you know some of the best moments of my life when you kind of realize and not to be hokey but like you know everybody it's universal and that is like a, that's an amazing feeling i'm not sure that any other career can can uh can can give the type of uh full uh world experience that that human, um or international work and so for that reason alone, um, you Thank you. And thank you for that sort of very, I think that's a very positive and uplifting sort of place to, to, to kind of come to, to an end there. Um, if people want to find out more about you and your work and what's the best way or platform that they can um, reach you on or, or find out more about you? 
Sure. Are you going to go on LinkedIn? I'm at Kara Tabach Twitter. I'm at Kara on Prime. Um, you can always email me. That's you know uh, a great way to get in touch with me, um, which is tabachnik at gmail dot com. You could email me, and I will reach out. And um, I hope to hear from some of you. Thank you. And thank you so much for kind of sharing with us your story, your journey, which has been really interesting and I know will be of huge, huge value to those who um, tune into this podcast. So thank you. Thank you, Vicky. I appreciate you including me and taking the time.